morning. Our scripture passage this morning comes from Romans 13, 8 through 14. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Well, thank you, Grace. This morning, uh, we continue in our study of the book of Romans, and we find ourselves uh, just being given really practical uh, application. We're continuing to see uh, Paul um, just... Uh, give us practical um, things to do, implications for the truths that we saw uh, that he gave us in the first 11 chapters. If you remember, we came to a turning point in chapter 12, uh, where Paul transitioned from just gospel truths, from theology and doctrine uh, to application and then implications for those truths. And so this morning, we find ourselves in the midst of that, and we're dealing with uh, some pretty familiar uh, verses, uh, especially for those of us who have grown up in and around the church. Uh, We see Old Testament commandments. We see exhortations uh, that even a lot of us will give to one another. And so my aim this morning is to help us, uh, just as a corporate body, be able to understand these phrases and these exhortations uh, within Paul's flow of thought. My prayer is that you would feel the weight of this text uh, on your life. And so to do that, I want to start by asking a question. And I think the answer to that question is very telling. The question is this, if you knew for certain that Jesus was coming back next Sunday, a month from now, a year from now, or just sometime relatively soon, would you live differently? Would you finally die to your pride and share Christ with your coworker? Would you work to be more productive instead of wasting your day? Would you finally see the foolishness of your sin? Now, I know that the question is not a perfect question, but what I hope that the question does is I hope that it begins to reveal uh, the idols of your heart. And I hope that it leads to a more realistic question of, am I ready for Christ to come back? Are you ready for his return? The reality is that Christ's return is imminent, and Christ calls us to watch for his return. No, we don't know when he's coming back, but are you ready? Our text today begs that question. It's a text that calls us to just ordinary, sober living so that when he comes back, we might be found living as we ought. And now some of you are are sitting there and you're asking yourself this question and maybe you've begun to look at your handout. And so you see these five exhortations uh, on your handout. And so you see, okay, I got to love others. I got to wake up. I got to prepare for battle. I got to 
put on Jesus. I got to make no provision for the flesh. Check, 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 check. Do these things and then I'm good. But that is not at all what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying do these things and be saved so that when Christ comes back, you're good. No, what we find in our passage today is not a list of to-dos, but rather it's one of identity. Paul is saying, wake up, put on your armor. This stuff over here, it has no place for the Christian. This over here, this, this is what your life ought to look like. And often what I'm about to say in a lot of churches, it just gets tacked on to the end of a sermon. It's, it's do this, do this, do this, and oh yeah, Jesus died and rose again, and so believe in him. But I can't do that this morning. I can't do that, one, because I see the gospel all throughout this text, but I also can't do that because Paul is not writing to unbelievers. Paul is writing to those who know Christ. He's writing to those who have already been saved, and so when we come to our text today, we can't forget the first 11 chapters of Romans. We can't forget that no amount of rule following will ever save anyone. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. And the consequences for our sin is death. Our only hope is Christ. And that's why the gospel is good news, because God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, thus offering a way of salvation. Romans 5.9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And so the reality for every person who ever has lived, the reality for every person who ever will live, is that we all deserve God's wrath. And his wrath was either poured out on Jesus at the cross, or it will later be poured out on you. And so there is nothing we can do but to cling to Jesus and what he has already done. If you remember uh, way back several weeks ago, Jared gave us a forward explanation of the gospel, God, man, Christ, and response. So no, there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves, but we are called to respond. And Paul charges us to do that in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so today, as you uh, think through the question of whether or not we as the church are ready for Christ's return, you may need to ask yourself if you even belong to the church. Are you ready for Christ to come back? When Christ comes back, is he coming to get you or is he coming to judge you? If the answer is that he's not coming to get you because you don't know him, then the New Testament is clear that you must repent and believe. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. For those that have repented uh, and believed in him, and this is a really helpful text that we come to today. It's a really helpful text for, for just what God calls us to. As we continually confess, Jesus, you're my Lord and I love you, then we are motivated to walk in obedience. That, not that we might be justified if we do this, but because of who we already are in Christ. And he's coming back, so let's ready ourselves. And that's where we find ourselves today. We see that Paul gives us five exhortations for us to ready ourselves for Christ's second coming. Five exhortations for us to ready ourselves for Christ's second coming. The first is this. We are exhorted to love each other. We see this right here in verse 8. Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who 
loves another has fulfilled the law. Now remember last week, the very end of our passage in verse 7, we are called on to pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And then we come to verse 8, which is a transition from paying taxes to paying all your debts. The debts we owe the government to the debts we owe to one another. And there's one debt that we will owe over and over and over that we will never be able to pay off, and that is the debt of love. You can pay off all of your other debts, but no, you will always owe love. What, though, is love biblically? Because I, I, I will say that I love chocolate chip cookies, but I also love my wife. And there would be something seriously wrong with me if I loved those two things in the same way. <laughs> right? But the reality is, is that I love my wife so much more, exponentially more, that, that it ought not to even be the same word. But we do this in our culture, right? Like there's such a wide range of meaning for the word love. Even when you, you talk to um, people about love within the context of relationship, You'll hear, I used to love them, or we fell out of love, or yeah, they're just really hard to love. So if we are to rightly understand what the debt of love is and what that debt is supposed to look like, then we have to understand what love even is. Because a wrong definition of love is going to lead to a wrong application of this commandment to love. We can't look at what the culture defines as love and then read that into our passage. We have to look at Scripture and see what does Scripture say that love is, and then let that dictate what fulfilling this commandment looks like. And so I want to argue that from Scripture, love is a choice one makes to give of themselves for the sake of another without requiring anything in return. A choice one makes to give of themselves for the sake of another without requiring anything in return. And so let's look at a few verses that help us understand this. The first verse I want to mention is 1 John 4, 8, which states that God is love. And so if we're to rightly understand what love is, our best bet is to look at the one who is love himself. And in looking at God, we see that he demonstrates his love through his son. Earlier, I referenced Romans 5, 9. I'm going to read it again. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And now this is really important in understanding what love ought to look like. We have to understand that Jesus was hated. But not only that, he was innocent. Jesus was not guilty and he was not deserving of the cross. Rather, he went to the cross for us. He died for us, thus becoming our substitute. And in doing so, he demonstrated what love ought to look like. So now when we wonder what is love supposed to look like, we look to Jesus who demonstrated that love for us on the cross. And the Bible says that Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. Jesus didn't wait until we were able to do anything in return. If he had, there would be absolutely no hope for us. You see, love is, a never, love is never a you meet my desires and I'll meet yours. It's not that kind of arrangement. When we think of what love is, we ought to lay down our lives for others like Jesus did. This is different than that feeling you get when someone makes you feel good. That's not love. Love is hard. Love is sacrificial. And as followers of Jesus, who laid down his life for us, that we might be saved from the wrath of God, we are to turn that same kind of love outwardly on those around us, even those that are hard to love. 
Paul is saying we owe everyone around us love, and it should mark our lives. John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We see also 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Again and again throughout the New Testament, we see that it is a mark of a Christian that they love. Your Father in heaven loves, so you love too. Just a chapter earlier in uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 14, we see that we are to bless those who persecute you. We are to show love even to our de- enemies. We demonstrate our Christian identity by love. And we know what love is by looking to Jesus. Jesus wasn't, though, just an example. Jesus was so much more. It's not that if Jesus didn't demonstrate love for us, we wouldn't just know what love looks like. No, it's that if Jesus didn't demonstrate love for us, we wouldn't be able to love ourselves. Apart from Jesus, we cannot love. He's not just a good example of what to do. He makes loving one another possible. And that is exactly what Paul calls us to do in this passage. He calls us to love each other. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That statement, love fulfills the law, that's a statement that we, we hear a lot. That's another thing that we need to ask ourselves, what does that actually mean? What does that statement, love fulfills the law, actually mean? Let's keep reading. Verse 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is actually, uh, in this verse, he's citing the Old Testament, and that's really important to know because there's a lie that many uh, in the church believe, and the lie is that the Old Testament was about law, and in the New Testament, we just need to love one another, as if these two things are in direct opposition to one another. That is a lie. And you'll see in your handout uh, there that the commandment, the exhortation to love, is in no way negating the commandment to follow the law. Like the idea that the call to love means we don't have to follow the law is insane. Like let's play that out with the commandments Paul gives here. You shall not commit adultery. Okay, yeah, the Old Testament says we shall not commit adultery, but I'm gonna do that in a loving way. Like the Old Testament says I, uh, do not murder, but I'm gonna murder this person in a loving way. I'm gonna steal in a loving way. I'm gonna covet in a loving way. Like do you see how crazy that is? Yes, the Old Testament uh, was not written to us, but it was absolutely written for us. When Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, he has the Old Testament in mind. And that doesn't mean that the Old Testament law is directly binding on Christians today, but I would argue that it both points to Christ and it provides guidance for New Testament believers on what it looks like to love God supremely and one another humbly. And so when Jesus tells us in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is not just making up new commandments here. Rather, he's stating what God has called Israel to do and now what he's still calling us to do. 
the Ten Commandments and all the other laws are really just a clarification for how Israel was then supposed to do that. And so in our passage today, when Paul states that love fulfills the law, he's really just giving a clarification for how we ought to do what the, love, what the law commands. And in doing that, you'll see that Paul writes in verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And Paul does this often in his letters where he has a pattern of making a statement, love fulfills the law. He explains that and then he circles back to that statement. And so in verse 10, he's finishing up his explanation. And this should be an obvious statement that we have here. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. And that should be obvious as we, we think through and we work through what is love and, and what does it mean to love others. Like in, in doing that, you're, you're not going to wrong your neighbor. You're going to lay down your life for the sake of others. And as we continue to just think, what, what does that mean for ourselves? I want you to ask yourself, are you loving towards those around you? Or are you just consumed with yourself? Are you consumed with your own interests, your own passions, your own glory? If that's the case, I want to call you to repent. We need to humbly seek the Lord and ask that we might be able to love those around us. And we need to ask him because we can't do this ourselves. Further, I think we need to do this because I think the integrity of the gospel is at stake. When others look at your life, are they saying, man, he loves people. Man, she does no wrong to her neighbor. Or would they say that you don't love others? The way that you treat people is not an expression of self-sacrifice. Or maybe you do treat people well. And so you're thinking that you're doing pretty good at loving others. But this passage is not just calling us to treat people well. It's calling us to lay down our lives for the sake of others. It's calling husbands to get off their phone and get off the couch and help their wife with the kids. It's calling church members to love one another. And maybe that means you come early and you help set up. Maybe that means you volunteer in kids. It's calling kids to put the game down and to help mom and dad out with the chores. You see, this is a call to, to wake up. It's a call to ask yourself, how can I serve my spouse? How can I serve my kids? How can I serve my neighbors, my coworkers, my friends, my church family? It's a call that begs you to ask yourself, is this the attitude of your heart? Are you loving others or are you going about your day just thinking through what you want? Maybe not even considering how you might do something for the sake of someone else. Paul is clear that in this passage, we are called to love others. We are called to make choices, to give of ourselves for the sake of another without requiring anything in return. Why? Because this is what Christians do. And if this is what Christians do, then this ought to be what we are found doing when Christ comes back. And church, I do want to take a moment uh, to encourage you all. Like, we need to hear these commandments. And as I've been preparing all week, and I've seen just the ways in which I'm selfish and I fail to love those around me. But, but for many of you, like I see husbands loving their wives. I see wives serving and loving their husbands. I see church members taking responsibility for one another's spiritual well-being and, and loving one another. And so honestly, as I was studying this passage, as I was preparing uh, for this, I was really encouraged. I was really encouraged to be part of a body of believers who I feel like in a lot of ways loves one another. And so hear these commandments 
and repent of the ways in which you are failing to love one another. But in a lot of ways, just keep doing what you're doing. Keep loving one another like Paul calls us to love in this passage because that's pleasing to the Lord. And that ought to be what we are found doing when he comes back. It leads to our second exhortation that we're given. You'll see it on your handout. When Christ returns, we are exhorted to be awake. He says in verse 11, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. When Paul says, uh, besides this, it's a, it's a Greek phrase that could be translated uh, just in addition to or uh, because of, and, and I think that really, uh, that it takes us back to the beginning of chapter 12, not just the beginning of the previous uh, paragraph. I believe that Paul's going back to chapter 12, and he's giving us just motivation for our obedience. I think that he's highlighting an aspect of the gospel message. For everything that he's been exhorting us to, he's highlighting our eternal hope, and he's using it as motivation for right living. So Paul tells us to wake up, but before that, he says, you know the time. And the time that he's referring to, it's our present age. It's the time that began with the coming of Christ, and it ends with his return. And so it's not time to play games. Christ is going to return. Regardless of your eschatology, which is just a, a fancy word to say what you believe uh, about the end times, regardless of uh, where you fall with that, and there's, there's a lot of differing views, but, but there's a thing that they all agree on, all the differing views, they all say Christ is coming back. And so wake up. Paul here isn't telling us uh, to literally not go to sleep. He's using an analogy. And in this analogy, sleep would represent just a lack of being ready. In fact, waking up might mean you go to bed at 9.30 so that you're not groggy in the morning and neglect to spend time with the Lord. So we can sleep, but it's after a day of working hard to honor the Lord. Jesus often in his teaching would call on his hearers to be ready because we know not when he's coming back. And since we don't know, wake up, stay watchful, be ready. He's coming back, and that time is coming quickly. Paul isn't saying that for everyone reading this, that, that Christ is coming back in your lifetime. No, we know, we know that's not true. He wrote this uh, nearly 2,000 years ago, and so it's, it's not true that for everyone reading this that Christ is coming back in their lifetime. But he is saying that if the return of Christ is to happen in our lifetime, every minute that passes, every hour that passes, is one minute or one hour closer to that reality. He says, for salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Church, we need to hear this. And we need to be motivated to obedience by this reality. But this is also such a, a great hope for us as believers. When Paul is speaking of salvation, he's talking about glorification. And so there, there's a moment where all believers are justified. We are now being sanctified, but, but one day we will be glorified. One day all sin will be removed and in our resurrected bodies, we will share in God's glory. And this is, this is such a sweet promise to look forward to. That there is a, a future and final salvation that Paul has in mind here. And in, in light of eternity, it's just around the corner. And so wake up. Walk in obedience. But also walk around as those with hope. When we suffer in this life, we don't suffer as those without hope. We suffer as those who know that salvation 
again, referring to glorification, is nearer now than when we first believed. And so when we experience trials, we ought not to respond in the same way that the world responds. When a virus hits that that changes everything about life as we know it, we ought not to respond in the same way that the world does. When your car breaks down and you don't have the money to fix it, when you lose your job, when you can't get pregnant, and you desperately want to have a child, when your body is broken, when the relationship with your parents is fractured, when you maybe lose a child, when your son or daughter rejects the faith, when that spot turns out to be cancer, know this. He's coming back. And he's making all things new and all things right, not just to alleviate physical suffering, but to take away sin and all the destruction that it causes. And so when sin is wreaking havoc in and around us, know that salvation in its completeness is coming, where Christ will completely satisfy our soul forever, where we will forever behold the beauty of Christ. Church, we can find great hope in this reality. This should be comforting to us. When we walk through life, we walk as those with hope, staying awake because salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. We keep reading in verse 12, which is really just a a continuation of the point that Paul just made. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. And this is the, the reading from the ESV. But I actually like the way the NASB translates this better. I like the way the New American Standard uh, translates it. I think it's just less confusing. Uh, It says, the night is almost gone, the day is near. Why must we wake from sleep? Because he's coming back. And and, and maybe you're like, man, Nate, that that was your last point. Well, it was Paul's last point too. And so if he says it twice, I feel like I should say it twice as well. Maybe we really need to hear this. Like honestly, how much of us how many of us are, are waking up and, and, and we're, we're thinking, Jesus could come back at any moment. i got to live today with that type of urgency. Maybe what Paul is doing is what we see all throughout the New Testament, and it's to hammer home what Jesus taught. It's to hammer home what, what many after Paul continued to teach. It's the reality that Christ has come, and he's done everything to defeat the powers of evil and bring Christians to a prepared kingdom. We're only waiting on him to come back. And so we see Matthew 24, 33. It says, so also when you see all things, you know that he is near at the very gates. 1 Corinthians seven twenty nine. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. James 5, 8 through 9. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. 1 John 2.18, we know that it is the last hour. And so I'm going to ask you the same question I asked earlier. Are you ready for Jesus to come back? Are you ready for Christ's return? This is a question that we need to be asking ourselves. It's both a a, a great hope and it's, it's a motivation towards right living. Jason DeRoshi, a professor at Midwestern Seminary, tells a story about a time he was preaching at a church, and behind, behind all the pews, uh, on the back wall, uh, it read, uh, is a verse from Amos, chapter 4, verses 12. And this is what it says on, on the back of the church. It says, prepare to meet your God. And I'm not necessarily saying that, that we need to put that uh, back there, um, 
but there is a, a sense in which we're very busy with, oh, I gotta prepare, I gotta prepare for this, I gotta prepare for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, but what are you doing to prepare for eternity? Are you ready? Paul urges us to, to be awake, to prepare, and he goes on to explain what a believer's life then ought to look like. And the rest of verse 12 says, so then, in light of that reality and in addition to the commandment to love, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. This is a call to walk properly and to cast off the works of darkness. It's a call to put on armor. And, and the reason that we're to put on armor, and this is our, our third exhortation, is because this is a battle. Another way to translate the word armor here is weapons. We have a putting off and a, and a putting on. Put off the works of darkness, put on armor. This is, this is military language, and I think it's really intentional that Paul is speaking in this way. There's a seriousness in which a soldier carries himself. So when Paul uses that language here, he's saying this needs to be taken seriously. This takes work, and we need to engage in the battle. Far too often, we as Christians are just not fighting our sin in this way. And we're not even being honest with ourselves when we confess our sin. We say this all the time, I'm, I'm struggling with fill in the blank. But are we really struggling? Or are we just full on indulging in sin? It sounds better to say that we're struggling than to say I'm wicked and sinful and I just love myself. But church, we need to be more honest and say things like I'm actually happily choosing to not serve and love my wife. I'm bitter and angry and I don't really want to change. I idolize my phone and I love wasting time on it rather than serving those around me. I really don't feel like being involved in the lives of others. I really don't feel like sharing the gospel with my coworker because I enjoy the relationship that we currently have and I don't feel like messing that up. I'm finding joy right now in looking at things that I shouldn't look at. I actually love dwelling on what others might say about me to esteem and affirm me. I know that I need to spend time in the word, but I love video games. I enjoy that feeling I get when I take that or drink that. You see, when we say we're struggling, it softens the blow. Because that's what we're actually supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be engaged in a war. And for far too many of us, we have not waged war on our sin. Listen, you will not stumble into obedience. You have to put on your armor and fight. We have to engage in this battle also with the soldiers to our left and to our right. There's not a, any such thing as a New Testament Christian who just flies it solo. And so do you have people in your life who know you and can ask you the hard questions, who can grab you by the shoulders and call you to repentance, who know when you're more susceptible to sin? Maybe you're thinking that you're fine, but you need to ask yourself, how serious are you about waging war on your sin. We have to stop saying things like, yeah, I just need to be better. Yeah, I'm just going to try to stop doing that. Or I know I need to try to read my Bible. Like there's so much more that we can do 
to fight our sin than to just intellectually understand that there's a problem and intellectually know what we need to do. Like the Bible, it says, cut off your hand. It says, gouge your eyes out. It says, put on armor. It says, grab your weapon. This is war. And when you're in a war, there are certain things that you can't do. You can't be distracted. You need to be focused and ready to fight. So we have to put on armor, church. But before that, we see that Paul calls us to cast off the works of darkness. And he gives us some examples of what that could look like. He says, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. And now this isn't an exhaustive list of sin, but rather it's just a representative list. There are certainly many more ways in which we as fallen humans can sin. But this, this list that he gives, it's a, it's a picture of darkness. And so I want to say a, a, just a brief word about these, these groupings. And the first grouping is not in orgies and drunkenness. And this group, actually, along with the second, it's given to us in the plural, possibly indicating, probably indicating that these sins are just more prevalent. But, but the grouping of, of these uh, first two uh, is portraying those who are, are engaged in wild parties. It's portraying those who aren't serious about holy things, those who are here and just want to enjoy and have a good time, those who've had a a stressful day or a stressful week, and rather than running to the Lord, they're running to a substance or a beverage. But don't we have freedom in Christ? Yes, you have freedom to obey, and now you don't have to get drunk. And so Paul says, don't get drunk. Be sober. Second grouping uh, that we see here is sexual immorality and sensuality. Now, if you're a member uh, of our church, I hope uh, that just even within the past few months, uh, you've began to feel the weight of sexual sin, that you've seen how destructive sexual sin is, not just to ourselves, but to those around us. Like there's no such thing as sin that doesn't affect those around us. And so you want to know a really practical way in which you can love others, a really practical way in which you can love your church, Repent of your sexual sin. If you are in any way engaged in an affair, if you are having sex outside of marriage, if you are practicing homosexuality, if you are looking at pornography, I want to call you to repent. This passage calls you to repent. I want to call you to believe the gospel that Jesus is better, that you are free to say no to your sin. But I also want to speak to those of you right now who maybe are thinking of someone else. And I want you to think about you. I want to remind you that Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust, you're an adulterer. I think it's really easy for Christians, particularly with sexual sin, to, to draw lines and to think there's, there's more serious expressions of sexual sin. As long as I'm not participating in that, then I'm good. Jesus calls us to so much more. He calls us to be pure in heart. And so, and so maybe there's, there's ways in which you're being faithful to your spouse, but are you just using your spouse as an object to get what you want? Church, we need to take this sin seriously that's deeply rooted in our hearts. We need to repent. We need to repent of our sexual sin. 
third grouping here commands us not to be quarrelsome and jealous. Now, both of these things, being quarrelsome and being jealous, they just work to tear people apart. They pit us against one another, and frankly, it's a failure to, to love others that results in these works of darkness. And so going back to Romans 12, we see that we are to pursue unity and love. We are to bless others. If you're picking fights and you're just jealous of what others have, then, then Paul is urging you to repent and to pursue unity and love. For all these examples, you're, you're going to see them all over the world in which we live. There are millions of people participating in these things. When Paul says, you look at the church, not here. Not here. These have no place among us. It's not who we are. Rather, we are to walk properly as in the daytime. And again, we are to ask ourselves, what does it look like to walk properly? It looks like a good soldier who's dressed appropriately. We know that we are to engage in a battle. We know that we are to cast off the works of darkness. We know that we are to walk properly. But the sad reality is that many of us are showing up to battle in our slippers. You wake up in the morning and you're concerned with the things of this world. You're arrogantly walking through life as if you've got this. Well, the only person who's got this is the person who wakes up every day and immediately runs to the Lord, runs to the Lord in prayer and in his word because they know that the pull of the flesh is strong, that the pull of the world is strong. And they know that they're going to be faced with a day where there's so many distractions. They know how weak and needy they are and how much they need to seek Christ. They know how much they need to remind themselves of the gospel truths. And so they, they do that as the only way that they can make it. That's what it looks like to walk properly. It looks like to be concerned with pursuing holiness. And that can be really hard. Like, I know that's hard. But we have to ask ourselves what our heart posture towards doing the hard work is. Is it one of pride or is it one of seeking the Lord? Paul is calling us to walk properly, not to be engaged in worldly things, not to pursue the darkness, but to put on armor and walk as children of the king who've been bought with a price, who've been made new, who've been given new desires, new affections. The call to walk appropriately is a call to be who you are. And so if you have repented and trusted in Jesus alone for salvation, Walk like you belong to the kingdom. If you aren't trusting in Jesus alone for salvation, you can't do this because it's not who you are. And so don't hear these as just some moral obligations. These are so much more than that. It's an idea that, that's closely tied to this fourth exhortation, and that is that we are to put on Jesus. The commandment here that Paul is making is to be like Christ. How do you prepare for the return of Christ? You run to Christ. You cling to Christ. You clothe yourself in Christ, knowing that he's your only hope. When we talk about putting on armor and, and fighting sin and pursuing holiness, Paul is just giving us a really tangible example. He's, he's telling us what, does, what that looks like. It looks like Christ. It looks like living like he did, but it's more than that. And, and again, this is a great place to remind ourselves that we're not doing these things as any means of earning God's approval in any way. 
No, it's a reminder of what Christ has already done for us. He's already lived the life that we couldn't. He's already taken the wrath due us. He's already died the death that we deserve. And he's already defeated death. And so when Paul is telling us to put off and put on, again, he's saying, this is who you are. I'm just calling you to dress like it. Paul is calling us to put on the Lord Jesus as the one in whom our only hope lies, the one in whom we trust, the one in whom we find supreme joy and delight. We don't put on Jesus because we have to or we're supposed to. We put on Jesus because we love him. We put on Jesus because we have nowhere else to turn. You've been made new, and Christ is the one to whom you belong. And so look like him and dress like him and and worship him as the one who's better than anything that this world has to offer. The call to put on Christ is, is not just a call for what to do on Sundays and Wednesdays. It's a call to put on Christ at all times. And so I want you to ask yourself, Are you coming to church and raising your hands, declaring Jesus is Lord of my life, he's all I need, but in private, your thoughts and deeds reflect that he's just not going to cut it? Are you coming to church, are you going to D.C. on Wednesday saying Jesus is better, but in private, you're actually saying I'm better, or sex is better, or what others think of me is better? You see, we are called to put on Jesus and make no provision for the flesh, Not put on Jesus, take off Jesus, make provision for the flesh, put Jesus back on. No, it's put on Jesus. We don't know when Christ is coming back, and so be ready. Let's be ready at all times. I want you now to imagine with me an athlete uh, who's on the bench, and uh, the coach at any moment could put him in the game, could put her in the game. And so that, that athlete has to be ready. Like, they better have the right shoes on, and they better have the right attire on. Because that coach could call them at any moment. And and then when they check into the game, they're wearing a jersey that identifies which team they're on. And so, likewise, we must always be ready and remember to whom it is that we belong. Knowing that we belong to Christ. Knowing that we must make no provision for the flesh. So this is our fifth and, and final uh, exhortation. It's to make no provision for the flesh. Another way to say this is, yes, don't sin. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't covet. Don't get drunk. Don't sin sexually. Don't quarrel. and Don't be jealous. But you know what else? Don't even desire it. Don't even entertain the thoughts that could at all awaken sinful desires in your hearts. As Christians, we ought to be repenting of the wickedness in our hearts that even entertains the idea of sinning in certain ways. When you daydream about your girlfriend who isn't yet your spouse, you're telling God, I'd rather have what you haven't given me yet because I think if I had that now, that's better. When your spouse offends you and you think to yourself demeaning comments, yes, it's, it's good that you're not saying those, but there's still sin for you to confess and repent of. When you're sitting there and you're alone and you're looking over at your computer or you're thinking about that website, there's sin for you to confess and repent of. The desire to sin is sin. We have to kill sin at its root. An outward expression of sin always first begins with an inward desire 
to sin. And, and Paul is very aware of this reality, and so he calls us to make no provision for the flesh. For those of you that, uh, that garden, uh, this is a similar process to picking weeds, right? I actually don't garden, but I did Google this. I literally Googled what happens when you don't get a weed's root. And, and this is what came up verbatim. Be sure you pull up weeds by their roots and don't just yank out the leaves. They can regrow if even small pieces of their roots remain. And so I ask you, what small pieces of sin are still in your heart? What small pieces of sin do you need to kill and to make no provision for? What are you doing to take your sin seriously and to kill even that desire? Because that's what we're called to. When Christ comes back, Paul is saying, don't just be found doing the right stuff. Be found with affections and desires that are supremely for him. Be found with hearts that are pure, even down to what you desire. Again, this passage is not a call to external conformity, but rather it's a reminder of an internal heart transformation that should demonstrate itself in, in these following ways, in the, in the ways that we have just seen. It's a reality uh, that was only made possible through the work of Jesus. And so trying to do these things without first being reconciled to God through the work of Jesus is completely backwards. We don't do these things to get anything, but, but rather we do these things because of who we are. Because God in his grace and mercy, he chooses to save some. And for those that he saves, he looks at and he says, you're mine. The reality is that, that many of us, and, and, and you might even be thinking this to yourself right now, man, I'm, I'm not doing this. I'm really struggling. Like these exhortations are hard to live in this way. I find myself failing in a lot of this. Well, welcome to the club. This is why Jesus came and died, right? That sinful man might still be brought in and called his children. And though we do fail in, in many ways, this is what we're striving for. And so we confess and we repent, knowing that he's faithful to forgive. And this is where the, the church comes in. We encourage one another. We exhort one another. We submit ourselves to leadership. We call one another to repentance. We test one another. We take responsibility for one another. We take the Lord's Supper, reminding us what Christ did, reminding us who we belong to, so that when Jesus comes back, we're ready. When Jesus comes back for his bride, will we be found doing what is honoring and pleasing to him? Let's pray. Lord, your, uh, your gospel is sweet. God, we rejoice in knowing that, that sinners like us might just long for and look forward to um, Christ's return, knowing that your wrath has been poured out on the cross so that, as Romans uh, 5 says, we might be at peace with you. And God, I pray that, that as your church, by your spirit, uh, that you would help us to ready ourselves for that day. Would you help us to, to put off darkness and to put on Christ? Would you give us supreme affections and desires for you that our, our sin would be seen for what it is? disgusting and destructive. Would you then cause us to not even desire it, 
God, we need your help as we seek to live lives uh, that are honoring to you. The pull of the flesh is strong and sin entices us. And so help us to believe that you're better and that only in you our hearts will find ultimate joy. Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.